You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and find your way there. Page 977 in those black hardcover Bibles is where you can find that text. The modern church's best kept secret is this. We believe in productivity, not prayer. The church's underground atheism in our time is that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. That's how an author named Tyler Staten puts it in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And when I read it several months ago, I had two immediate reactions. One was agreement. Like, man, that is... That is true. Uh, We do not prioritize prayer. It always seems to get the back burner. It always seems to get the leftovers. I think that's probably true for our church. I know it's true for me personally. That was my first reaction. My second was, why does it feel like I have to keep learning that? Why does it feel like I have to keep learning that? So I've been involved in, in leading or serving in ministries or churches for over two decades now. I started when I was five. Uh, and yet, and yet, I didn't really, I just look young, I just look young. And yet, uh, this feels like a new insight every single time I come across it. Why? Why hasn't it sunk in yet? Why do I keep going back to this default posture of busyness and, and productivity? Maybe you can relate to that this morning. In that quote that I read, Tyler Staten calls this out as, as an issue for the modern church, and he's right about that. But it's not a new phenomenon. Half a century ago, ago, the the Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones said something very similar. He said, The truly practical man is not the man who is always bustling and busy and excited and rushing about here and there, but the man who is being used by God the Holy Spirit. It is only when the church is revived by the Spirit that she becomes powerful. As long as we continue to trust our own abilities and activities, we shall avail Nothing. The church needs the fullness of God, which alone leads to to true practical activity. And if that, 50 years ago, still feels maybe to you like the modern era, then about 1900 years prior to that, the Apostle Paul was aware of this very same proclivity as he was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. And so this morning, as we continue our sermon series on prayer, we're going to see that prayer gives strength. Prayer gives strength. Most of us, if you've been a Christian, if you've been around the church for some period of time, most of us appreciate that prayer is intercession. In other words, most of us agree with and we practice prayer as a way of bringing our needs and the needs of other people before God. And prayer is most certainly intercession. That's a huge part of what prayer is. But what I hope you're going to see this morning is that prayer is also impartation. Not just intercession, but impartation. Because we are communing, talking with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, prayer is also a means by which God imparts power. It's a way that that we and others are spiritually strengthened. And therefore, a way that we are able to do far more than we ever could by our own strength, by our own productivity, by our own busyness. So we're in Ephesians 3 this morning, imprisoned in Rome, 
unable to be physically present with or, or really produce anything for them, the Apostle Paul does what is ultimately more impactful and prays for the Christians in Ephesus. He prays that God would impart strength. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. Lord God, we, we bless you this morning, and we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that not only your word, but your spirit has been given to your church to strengthen us. And we ask now that by your spirit, you would prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives to be strengthened and to be changed by you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ephesians chapter 3, picking up in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. So prayer is not simply intercession. It's also impartation. It gives strength. And we're going to walk through these verses in Ephesians 3 and see four aspects, four kinds of strength that prayer gives. Strength with power, strength to love, strength to comprehend, and then abundant strength. Strength with power, strength to love, strength to comprehend, and abundant strength. So first, let's talk about strength with power. Power, I'm sure you're aware, has become a really convoluted word in our time. Uh, There have been a lot of tragic abuses of power in the political realm, the religious realm, all kinds of fields. And so in response, there have been increasingly popularized approaches like critical theory and intersectionality that have encouraged us to, to see, to evaluate every single interaction we have through the lenses of power. Who has more? Who has less? A lot of us, therefore, in response, maybe this describes where you're at then, we've become kind of power-averse, power-avoidant. We just want to kind of stay away as as far away as we can from the dangers and the drama of all the discussion about, about power. What you'll discover, if you haven't discovered this already, is that that is actually an utterly empty and unsatisfying way to live. See, created by God and made in his image, you were made to both submit to God's power, and to exercise power that he has imparted to you. One of the ways that we misuse power, one of the ways we're really prone to misuse power is by abusing it. And so if we ignore, if we forget that we first and always submit to God's power, God's authority, we will become arrogant little dictators of our own little worlds. We'll use power in in heavy-handed and manipulative and impatient and unmerciful ways. But the other way to misuse power, maybe the less obvious form, is to abdicate it. 
It's to not pursue the proper exercise of power as one who has been made to rule with God, to exercise stewardship, to exercise dominion over this world that God made. Our lives should be characterized by spiritual power. And so Paul writes in in another letter, 1 Corinthians, that the kingdom of God does not consist simply in talk, does not consist simply in words, but in what? It's not a rhetorical question. You can can answer. Power, right? Not just in talk, but in power. When Jesus came into the world, he came proclaiming good news. He came with words, but he also came healing. And he came casting out demons. And he came performing miracles, displaying the power of the kingdom of God. He did not avoid power. He just used it. He applied it mercifully. How do we do the same thing following in in his footsteps? How do we step into and live out the kind of power that, that we actually are meant to as those who are made by God, those who belong to God? Prayer. The answer is prayer. And so in verse 16 here, Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in their inner being and that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And maybe this was true when I read it a moment ago. That's kind of a confusing Sentence. I mean, the whole thing is, it's one long sentence. Paul loves run-on sentences. It's kind of a confusing sentence here, though, because as Christians, he's writing to Christians, these men and women already have faith. They, they already have Christ dwelling in their hearts. They already have the indwelling spirit. So why is Paul praying for something they already have? It's because, like them, we also have to actually lay hold of what's been secured for us. We have to lay hold of what's been secured for us. It's, it's a little bit like unclaimed property. You guys familiar with the, the concept of unclaimed property? A couple years ago, my mom came across a, a small life insurance policy that her father, my grandfather, had taken out. Uh, my grandfather passed away about 20 years before that, but nobody knew that this life insurance policy existed. And so for about two decades, the money from that policy sat in unclaimed property. It was there. Uh, My mom and her brother, my uncle, had a rightful claim to it, but it wasn't being put to use. It wasn't making any difference in their life, even though it was theirs. It's not a perfect metaphor, but there's something like this in the Christian life. Apart from our efforts, completely apart from any efforts or merit of our own, Jesus Christ has secured the benefits of eternal life and of the kingdom of God. But we are meant to then lay hold, to take hold of those benefits, to pursue them, to step into them. In his book on prayer, Tim Keller calls this the difference between something being objectively secured and personally appropriated. Objectively secured and personally appropriate. He writes, prayer is the way that all the things we believe in and that Christ has won for us actually become our strength. So this morning, if you're here and you trust in Jesus, you trust in his finished work, then positionally, objectively, Christ dwells in your hearts. You have the spirit of God. My question for you is experientially, experientially, is that actually strengthening you with power? Is that actually making a daily difference in your life? Are you experiencing ongoing renewal of spiritual strength? Are you experiencing impartations of the power of God to believe, to speak, to live out this life following Jesus? 
If not, pray for that. Pray for that. And if you are, praise God, keep praying for it. Keep praying for it. This is like a little bit like rebar in concrete. And all the construction folks in the room are like, Matt's going to butcher this analogy completely because I'm not an engineer. I don't really know. I'm not very handy. But I, I'm told, I, I'm told that concrete gets its strength from rebar, from the, the steel rods that are inside it. Without rebar, it's still concrete, right? It's still concrete, but it doesn't have anywhere near the same strength. If you're building a structure, a house, a building with concrete, and you don't have rebar in it, it can't bear anything close to the same kind of weight. Neither can you. Neither can you. If you are going to bear the weight of life in a fallen world, if you are going to neither abuse power or abdicate, abdicate power, you need strength in your inner being. You need the benefits of Jesus' salvation. You need the power of the Spirit's presence within you continually brought to bear, continually infused into the core of who you are. And prayer is what will give that strength. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, I cannot make myself strong. I cannot put this iron into the walls of my soul. Do what I will, I fail. But here is strength from God. Here is strength from God. So strength with power. Second, let's talk about strength to love. Strength to love. One of the primary ways that we'll actually know if we are being strengthened with power from the Spirit is love. Living a life of love is the evidence of spiritual strength. And so in verse 17, Paul continues this prayer for the Ephesians, and he prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love. Two, Im- two images, two metaphors there. There's an agricultural one and an architectural one. Deep roots of love, roots that go really deep into the ground, and a solid foundation of love that you can build a life on. Now, in Christian circles, we, we assume love. It's one of the first things that we come to learn about God whenever that was for you in your life. It's one of the first things we come to know about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. It's a word that is used all throughout Scripture. Jesus teaches that that love is the fulfillment of the whole law, that all of the law is summed up in the commandment to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But the truth is, we can never assume love. It's a fatal mistake to think that even if you've been a Christian for decades, that you will ever arrive at this place where you're just kind of an automatic pilot of love, where you just will perpetually love people and and, and then you can move on to, to something else. Our love grows cold, does it not? Our love, at least mine does, it ebbs and flows. And it's scary how quickly, how easily it is to abandon the roots and the foundations of love. Even if, this is the scary part, even if the external stuff in our lives as Christians still looks faithful and impressive. That's why Paul has to write things like he does in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just empty noise. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am what? We're going, to get, we're going to get this, guys. We're going to get the call and respond. I am nothing, right? I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, as a martyr, he's saying there, but have not love, I gain nothing. Okay, that's impressive external stuff, is it not? 
That's incredible manifestations of spiritual gifts, demonstrations of power to our first point, radical generosity, giving away everything you have, radical commitment, being willing to die for the sake of Christ. But all of it is empty and worthless without love. And so if we're praying for strength with power, but not for the, the corresponding strength to love, we gain nothing. We gain nothing. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you in your life need strength to love? Where do you need, or maybe who do you need strength to love? What coworker is making your and everybody else's job miserable right now? What neighbor or classmate or roommate is just annoying the heck out of you? What family member is creating all kinds of tension, all kinds of pain point, points in your family dynamics? Or what relationship is just really hard right now? It's broken. It, it needs more peace and, and restoration. We need strength to love. We need the Spirit of God to do powerful work to reroot and to reground our lives in love. So pray for the strength to love. Ask God for that gift with confidence that he will grant it. But what I would also say to you this morning is that in light of Ephesians 3, ask someone else to pray that for you. Ask someone else to pray this for you. So Paul here is not praying this for himself. He's praying it for the Ephesians. He's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in love. It can be really hard to pray for love when you're having a hard time loving that difficult person. And so pray for it, absolutely, but also Ask other people to pray for you that you would be rooted and grounded in love. Ask God for strength to love. Ask others to ask God on your behalf. Third, let's talk about strength to comprehend. Strength to comprehend. The strength that we need from the Spirit of God is not only about our love. It's also, Paul writes, the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. To understand, to comprehend his love. So in verse 18, Paul prays that the Ephesians, along with all the saints, all the men and women and children who have been brought into the family of God, that we would together have strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and depth of the love of Christ. You see, in contrast to to our love, which is fickle and limited and weak, Jesus' love has immeasurable dimensions. One author called it like the glorious cube, <laughs> height and length. And it's, not even, it's like four-dimensional. I'm not even sure exactly how that works. But it's immeasurable. Jonathan Edwards once called it an ocean without shores or bottom. That's the love of Christ. I think that's where we get the lyric from the song from too. The love of Christ transcends the boundaries, the obstacles, the walls that so often hinder and restrict our love. So I'm not sure if this jumped out at you or not when we read it, but but Paul is praying for something kind of crazy here. He's praying that Christians would know the unknowable. That they would know the unknowable. He says the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's unknowable. And yet, he's praying that we would know it. Now we have some really smart people in this church, which is not at all intimidating. Right? Never been a source of insecurity for me ever in my life. They're really smart people. You guys are really educated, really bright people. Here's the level playing field. 
the smartest person in this room or any other room you walk into, the best problem solver, the one who aced all of his or her exams, the most theologically well-read and articulate person, which is not me in this room, by the way, is not smart enough to comprehend the love of Jesus by the strength of their own intellect. Doesn't matter how you did in school. Doesn't matter how many books you read. Not one of us is smart enough to comprehend this by the strength of our own intellect. And yet, here Paul is praying that all of us, including those of us with the least intellectual capacity, the worst problem solvers, the ones who bombed all of their exams, the least theologically well-read and articulate people, that we would all know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, this has nothing to do with your mental ability. It has everything to do with spiritual strength. Everything to do with spiritual strength. It has everything to do with the Spirit of God allowing you to begin to comprehend what is otherwise incomprehensible. Over the centuries, Christian theologians like John Owen, many others before him, have articulated what's called the beatific vision. It kind of looks like the word beautiful, but it's the beatific vision. I'm talking about smarts, you know I had to flex and put like a, like a fancy word out there for you. So that's, there it is. But a beatific vision means a direct sight of the glory of God. Okay, a direct sight of the glory of God. No one has seen God, but one day we will. At best, this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, at best we now see in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face. The thing is, is that even though we won't see it in full in this life, We are meant to spend our lives on this earth looking for the glory of God, looking for the face of God until we see it, until we see it. Well, there's a related idea here in Ephesians 3. So maybe instead of the beatific vision, we could call it the beatific comprehension. We not only want to see what cannot be seen, we want to know what cannot be known. We want to know what surpasses knowledge. And so we fix our minds, we fix our hearts on Jesus' love, and we pray for strength to comprehend it more and more. Let me encourage you just on the practical side to, to take some time today or some time this week and to really meditate on the love of Jesus. Meditate on the love of Jesus. Not, not to figure it out, not to solve for X when it comes to love, as though with enough time or focus you could just comprehend it yourself. But the other mistake we can make here, because Jesus' love surpasses knowledge, we can, we can leave it unexplored. We can leave it unconsidered. We can leave it unknown when there's actually strength from the Spirit of God to comprehend it. So I would encourage you to do what a friend of mine once called chasing butterflies. You know how a child will, will chase a butterfly around endlessly And it's not linear. They'll just kind of go from plant to plant to tree. And the kid just kind of runs after it all over the yard or the park or the field or or wherever you are. This week, pray for strength to comprehend. And then be an adult chasing butterflies. Let your mind start to wander out, to wade out into the immeasurable dimensions of Jesus' love. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth of it. Love that that moved him to create you and this world. Love that moved him to redeem from sin. Love that is moving him in this very moment to uphold and to sustain your life and this world. And love that will move him to bring all of that to completion. 
Chase those kinds of butterflies. And as you do, pray for strength that God would allow you to comprehend what is otherwise incomprehensible. Fourth and finally, let's talk about abundant strength. Abundant strength. And Paul concludes this portion of his letter with this doxology and some really incredible claims. First there in verse 19, that we could be filled with all the fullness of God. And then in verse 20, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So this is what I'm just referring to this morning as abundant strength, even more than abundant. It's a superabundance, as it's been called. And this idea that, that we could actually be filled with all the fullness of God. So it's an amazing thought. Not that we would ever become God. That's not what Paul means. There are certain attributes that belong to God that will never belong to us. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who is God the Son, he was the fullness of God. He was the exact imprint of God's nature in a way that you and I never will be. But there is a way, Paul writes here, for you and I to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. To once again be uncorrupted image bearers, the uncorrupted image bearers that we were created to be. To be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and have lives characterized by a fullness of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And God is not only able to fill us to that measure, he's the one who's able to do far more abundantly, more than what we even ask of him. Even the things that we think, the thoughts, the prayers that we have, but maybe we're too afraid to pray because we can't even bring ourselves to say them out loud. They're that audacious. God knows those things and is able to do far more abundantly than that. And yet, as we said at the start, here we are obsessed with our own productivity instead of prayer. Busy with, with anything and everything else. Living as though more of my effort, more of my time will be what, what actually moves the needle and makes a difference. We live with prayer simply as, as kind of like the 911 emergency call. Moments of just utter desperation when we've tried all of the stuff ourselves and, and it hasn't worked. Or as, as the disciplined act that is forming us. And I hope you've already heard that throughout the series this summer. You should pray those kinds of prayers. Those are, that is true. Those, that is what part of what prayer is. But if Paul, what Paul is writing here is true, then praying for strength to the God of abundant strength, that is an infinitely better and more effective use of, of your time, of my time, than 15 minutes or hours or days or months more of productivity. Do you want what your strength can accomplish? Or do you want the abundant strength of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Do you want what your strength can accomplish? Or do you want the abundant strength of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? You have to choose today and tomorrow and each day after that. You have to choose if what you want in your life is your strength or the abundant strength of God. And here's where I'm at as we just gear up to launch a new ministry year, a new school year for a lot of us, and all the different ways that the end of August feels infinitely more like New Year's than January 1st. I don't know if that's true for you, but it's totally true for me. Okay, here's where I'm at. 
I want my life and I want your life, the saints of Liberty Church, to be more characterized by the right kind of power. I want us to be more rooted and more grounded in love, those deep roots and that firm foundation, living lives of love. And I want to know more of the love that surpasses knowledge. I want to know more of that. I want less obsession with planning and execution. I could do with less to-do lists in my life. I want to stop being consumed by a focus on productivity and, be, and rather be consumed with a greater beatific vision, beatific comprehension. Would you be with me in that? Would you be with me in that? All of this is possible because God is the God of abundant strength. And because it is his power, as Paul writes here, that is now at work within us. The way to lay hold of all of it is to ask, is to pray for it, is to pray this for yourself and to pray this for one another. Each week in this series, we've been offering a a practical tool to use in prayer. The tool that I want to offer you today is what I've heard called the Jesus-only prayer. Jesus-only prayers. In other words, big, bold prayers for things that only Jesus can accomplish. If most of us are honest, we aim too small in prayer. We aim too small. We limit our prayers to to physical and personal needs. We limit our prayers to to ask for God's help for things that are making us stressed or anxious. We, We pray for health issues. We pray for our third cousin's pet hamster. Okay? Now, please hear me on this. You should pray those prayers. Maybe not the hamster one, but the other ones, you should pray those prayers. You should pray for the the daily, physical, personal, mundane needs that you have. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So pray for that. Just don't limit your prayers to that. Don't aim too small. Not when the one you're praying to is able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or think. A Jesus-only prayer is the kind of prayer that if answered, it would be obvious not only to you but everyone else that it's something infinitely beyond the capability, the capacity of anybody but the abundant strength of God. One way to get you thinking about this, about Jesus-only prayers, is by answering a question that Tyler Staten wrote in, in his book. He put it this way, if God gave you, if he actually gave you everything you prayed for in the last week, what would happen? If God gave you everything you prayed for in the last week, what would happen? If you find yourself limiting what you pray for, minimizing what you pray for, aiming small, let that question start to ignite your imagination. Let it compel you to start praying some Jesus-only prayers. And if it's still hard to begin, if you're still just coming up empty right now, one Jesus-only prayer you can copy and paste and start praying right now is the one we've been in this morning from Ephesians chapter 3. You can pray Paul's prayer for another person. Maybe even the person that's sitting next to you right now. Maybe maybe you pray this over the people in your Bible study group as those relaunch in a couple weeks. Or your roommate, or over your kids, or over your parents. Pray that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Pray that they would be strengthened to love, strengthened to comprehend, and filled with all the fullness of God. And pray all of those things as though it might actually happen because God is the God of abundant strength. Why can you pray this way? Why would you do this? For the very same reason Paul did. I don't know if you noticed because we skipped over it. It's how he begins this section of the letter. He says, for this reason, 
for this. There was a reason Paul bowed his knees and prayed audacious, Jesus-only prayers that God would impart this kind of strength to the saints in Ephesus. And his reason, and your reason, my reason, is that, is that the eternal purposes of God have now been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The mystery of how God was going to rescue and bless not only the family of Abraham, but as he writes, all the families of the earth, has been revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now, according to the riches of his glory, that very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. It's at work in you by the Spirit. For this reason, men and women, may you see today that prayer is not simply intercession, but that it is impartation. May you see today that prayer gives strength. And let that lead you to pray Jesus-only prayers. And may God's abundant strength be yours in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask by the power of your spirit that you would give us the strength we need to live out this message we've heard today. I pray over the men and women and children in this room this morning that you would strengthen them with power by your spirit in their inner being. Jesus, that you would dwell in their hearts by faith. I do pray all of these things that Paul has written here. I pray for their rootedness and groundedness in love. I pray for their comprehension to know your love. May we be a community of people characterized by strength that you impart to us. And may we forsake the folly of trusting our own busyness and efforts and productivity. And may we instead turn to you, the God of abundant strength in prayer. We turn to you now. We come again to your table now. All of your eternal purposes have been fulfilled in Jesus. And we come now to rejoice and celebrate that. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.